A lot of folks that, that come to me, they say, um, I don't want to do repair and retreatment contracts. I only want to do retreat only contracts. And I say to them, why? And, and they say, well, I don't want the liability. Well, you have to remember that under a repair and retreatment contract, if you don't treat in accordance with the label or you don't inspect properly, what did you do? You just breached the contract, didn't you? This is the PMP Industry Insider Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome out to another episode of the PMP Industry Insider Podcast, where we look at what is changing in the industry and we take it to the front lines to those that are driving those changes. As always, I'm Donnie Shelton, owner of Triangle Home Services, which is Triangle Pest and Triangle Lawn. With me, as always, is I I don't know, compadre in arms. And I don't know, Dan, I, I keep running out of ways of introducing you. We need to swap this up so that like you're the one introducing me. That oh, you like, don't want that. you're probably right i don't want that but Uh, dan would you like to say we're i guess technically it is still morning introduce yourself don't forget our sponsor our topic and our outstanding guest there you go there's a checklist so good morning everyone dan gordon pco bookkeepers pco m a specialists and um today our episode is sponsored by coal march by workwave uh, to learn more about their solutions, uh, visit them at colmarch.com. And today, this is a, this is a treat. So our guest, um, I, I think I spend more time with him than I spend with my wife because he works on mergers and acquisitions. Uh, Mark is an, an attorney. Um, he is an attorney who's been representing the needs of Florida pest control operators for many years, represents dozens of pest control operators, has significant experience representing them in a number of cases, including defense claims of chemical exposure, wood destroying organism, uh, inspection reports, repair and retreatment contracts, non-competes, corporate mergers and acquisitions, which is mainly what I do with him, and more. He currently serves as counsel for FPMA, that's the Florida Pest Management Association, um, as an advisor to the Certified uh, Pest Control Operators Association of Florida, and is a member of the Fumigation Advisory Council Board of Directors. Uh, you may remember him from episode 48. We did legal pitfalls in pest control. The reason that I wanted him to come back today is he and I did a talk at an FPMA meeting a couple of weeks ago. And um, he did a PowerPoint on a piece of his business that I really didn't realize that he was this involved with. And it was fascinating to me. It was absolutely fascinating to me. So anyway, with all of that, welcome, hey, Mark. Whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. You, yeah, you didn't say what the topic is. Okay. Well, it's uh, termite liability, but there's quite a bit more than that. Okay, good. Uh, to it. Good. So, so Mark Sorry, will, Mark. Mark I didn't mean to say that. that, that yes. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, welcome. Mark. Anyway, welcome. You there? I am here, and I'm glad to be ah. here again with you guys. You guys are you guys do an awesome presentation. I'm always glad to help you out when I can. Well, Appreciate we like to squabble it. just a bit too, but Mark, we're glad to have you here and we're grateful to hear what you have to say about termite liability. I've looked over this. I was not in Florida at this presentation, but I was just floored when I started going to the presentation. So um, why don't we get started? Um, I Obviously, a lot of our listeners and me personally, I'm in the termite business and I think we all understand that it's that it is a liability to do it. I've seen folks who their whole business model is based off of doing these termite inspections for real estate. Um, 
you know, there's others who dabble in other pieces of termite liability. Let's start off with talking about, um, you know, the legal aspect of, of termite control. Just let's start big picture. And then, I mean, I think probably a good thing to do would be just to kind of run through um, really your presentation, the outline, and we'll just kind of follow that. So does that, does that work? That works for me. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. let's let's start with the biggest piece of the puzzle in Florida. Really revolves uh, around the uh, service contract. Uh, that is predominantly where the plaintiffs' bar suing pest control companies focus their attention on, because under our statutory scheme, uh, a contract has to uh, comport with various um, requirements, and if those requirements aren't there then uh, the exclusions and limitations in the contract may not be valid. So they focus on the contract first, and that is something that is overlooked in this industry a lot. Um, many of the uh, smaller operators, mostly, um, they look at the larger companies and they take their contracts and they essentially cut and paste them together. And a lot of times those contracts aren't legal. So what happens is when the contracts don't comport with with the in in Florida here it's chapter uh, 42226 and 5E14105 if they don't comport with that then the plaintiffs argue that all the exclusions and limitations uh, on the agreement are are invalid and you can't use them so it, then they take that uh, violation of the regulatory statute and they try to weave it into a consumer statute called the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act, which if they prevail on it, the plaintiff's attorney can recover attorney's fees. So that's really how in Florida the focus has been here lately. There are some cases where uh, the plaintiffs uh, sort of bifurcate their case a little bit and they go after the uh, property damage carrier under what's called a collapse provision. And what happens under that under that scenario is there they say there's so much termite damage in the house that the home is in uh, in a state of of essentially falling down, and they want to go ahead and recover under their collapse provision. Now that's important because. In Florida, uh, we have a rule that a tortfeasor cannot benefit from insurance claims. So what the plaintiff's bar does is that they try to resolve their claims with the property carrier first before they deal with the pest control company. They won't even settle with the pest control company until they've resolved their claims with the property carrier. Um, so because under the way our statutory scheme is set up here in Florida, they can essentially get a double recovery. And between the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act and the double recovery for uh, collapse provisions uh, under a property policy, uh, they can make money. And it's all about making money in this game. So, so just that the, the, the thing that struck me uh, was that a lot of these lawsuits are not over termite damage, but they're over attorney's fees and just making money. Is that, that that's the thing that really struck me. Is that, me. A, what, is that a shocker? I mean, well, you know, <laughs> I'm not an attorney, but Mark is, so I don't want to. Uh, well, know. but you stop, but stop and think about it for a moment. If, if let's say you had a hundred thousand dollar damage claim and you had to hire an attorney, you didn't want to pay by the hour. So you hire an attorney under a contingency fee. 
So you have $100,000 worth of damage, okay? Let's say the attorney recovers full value. Well, now you, now the homeowner only has $60,000 to repair a $100,000 loss. Whereas if the attorneys can, the plaintiff's attorneys can weave in the recovery of attorney's fees and get a double recovery, you know, the consumer can recover 100% of the loss without having to pay attorney's fees. So, uh, I mean- Or more, it, right? Or, or more, yes. And and yeah. and some of the attorneys, and I will tell you that that over the years, there's a couple of attorneys who, uh, plaintiff's attorneys who really know how to play the game and they really are good at it and they are as good or better than, you know, your average defense attorney who, who deals with first party property damage. And, you know, if you don't know how to defend these types of claims, um, you have no business going up against these guys because they know the statutes and they know the rules better than, than most attorneys do. So it, these guys, some of these guys, uh, they've got very successful law practices and they've made a, uh, a whole living out of suing uh, pest control people. Right? They, they are they are multimillionaires. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so let's just start big picture. Let's back up for a moment. Like Donnie, you okay. said a lot. Yeah. No, 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 no. no. So, OK, right. so I, I'm a I'm a pest control operator and. You know, it, it sounds like from where you started, you know, I may or may not have the the money or I may have decided, well, I'll just have someone look at my termite contract or whatever. But it sounds like first and foremost, the weakness is on the contract because here's the reality. Right? And I'm just going to say it's the reality. If you do a high volume bit of termite work, if you if you have a sizable business, things are going to happen. I mean, it's just, that's just life, right? I mean, that's just, it. we all know that there are things that are going to happen despite your best, you know, despite your best um, efforts. So if I'm an, if I'm a business owner and I own a pest control company, okay. So walk me through like, okay, here's what you need to be looking at. And here's where you can batten down the hatches because the reality is, and I want to get more into the like strategies that, that, you know, attorneys use to, to go against, you know, pest control companies. But I really want to talk first about what do I do to protect myself and how do I set myself up to minimize that risk? Well, first and foremost, uh, you have to tie, you, you have to have a good training program in your, in your company. It starts with training. And uh, once your people are trained, they have the requisite training and category that they're going to be working in, that, 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 that's where it starts. The next thing is to make sure that you're working within the regulatory scheme, that your contracts, especially like here in Florida, all your um, wood-destroying organism contracts have to comport with Chapter 42. So, so hang on, sure. I'm going I'm to pause you there. What does it mean to have a good training program? I have seen uh, things all over the board from you know such and such go around with Johnny for three weeks and you're good to like, this needs to be documented. It's something that's added by the state. And I realize we have listeners all over the country and here in North Carolina, you know, you, you do have to have so many hours of OJT and there's what's called, you know, registered tech school that you got to do. But it's pretty open, like it's your interpretation as to what it means to train someone. And so I'm just curious, is there, if you're going to stand in front of a, a, a judge and jury or whatever, and it's like, okay, your training program, like if it was under the spotlight, what are some critical component components that need to be there? 
Well, first off, you have you have to have a verifiable training program. In other words, you have to have the documentation showing you know, what you've trained that technician in. Uh, you know, in Florida here, each uh, each technician has to have 40 hours of training in the category they intend to conduct pest control in. That has to be documented that that 40 hours occurred. But then you have to remember that that we're in a dynamic industry where things change. That 40 hours, you know, might be good for an overall uh, entry level individual, but you put an individual on the truck and now they've got, you know, 10 different types of pesticides that they they may be having to utilize. They've got to be trained on those labels. Uh, they have to be, you know, constantly trained and updated to make sure that, you know, they're documenting their, uh, their service, you know, their, how much product I put down, where I put it down. Uh, it's critical. Uh, that That's what I'm looking for is verifiable training. And even in these termite damage cases, WDO uh, cases, you know, the good plaintiffs are, are wanting to see those training records and mm -hmm. wanting to know that you're trained in, in how to uh, monitor and uh, maintain a baiting system. You know, that you know how much, uh, how much uh, termiticide to put down in an external vertical barrier treatment. These are the things that need to be in, uh, in in that training file, and they look for that. They know to look for that. So, um, you know, a lot of times it's not there. Uh, you don't you don't see where the training is documented. It, this uh, is a challenge for the industry. I mean, and I'm not. I will tell you that, to my knowledge, and I hope some of our listeners will enlighten me on this, but. I don't know of a very good training platform that documents every, I mean, there, there are def, definitely systems out there, but you're right. I mean, this is a huge open area because to my knowledge, there's not much out there that standardizes this, you know, I mean, people can do the paper route and I think some folks do, but we all know how that goes. Um, well, that's true, but you know, it, it doesn't have to be some formal system. For example, uh, a lot of my clients, they hold weekly training, on a Friday, they'll bring everybody in and they'll say, okay, today we're gonna to talk about the this product's label and how it's applied and they'll answer questions. And so in their training record, there's a form that said on this date, we talked about this product and its applications. And then it's signed by the technician validating that, you know, verifying that, that they attended this training on that label. And that protects in Florida, that actually protects the certified operator. You know, because the sort of if the technician, uh, you know, conducts, you know, is negligent in the application of the, of the termiticide, you know, in Florida, the certified operator is responsible for supervising that technician. And his defense is, look, I trained him. Here's his training record. He signed off on this pesticide, yet he decided to, you know, uh, misuse the product. It's not on me. Uh, it's on him. And that actually protects that certified operator. Yeah. yeah. So I think Back two things I heard you. there is, I was, I was going to just summarize that and Go I'll ahead. let you run in, yep. which is two things I heard out of that is number one is have a training program that you can, you can replicate. And number two is to have the technician sign off that they receive the training. That, those are the two key things I heard. So Dan, Go ahead. But, but also we'll, we'll talk about it later, having the contract um, be proper and the right font. Well, I was going to say, I didn't let Mark boldness. finish. But, I stopped but, him but, on the training but, part. <laughs> but, 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 but here's, here's my question to you. So, right. So there's two, we can look at this as two prongs, right? There's the, um, there's the, 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 the contract and the training issue, or, and then there's this uh, 
collapse provision, right? So what if your contract complies and what if your training is good, but you just missed the termite damage? Is that a case that one of these pariah attorneys will take because they can't get the um, the first piece, only the termite damage? Is that, uh, you know, what, what happens in that case? Well, I guess if I understand your question is, even if you do everything right, are you still going to get sued? Is that is that really where you're going? Well, are you going to get sued for double, <laughs> right? So in other words, is is it worth it for the attorney to take on that, um, that case? Is it more lucrative to take a case on that um, contracts out of compliance? Well, I mean, if the contract's out of compliance, and you know, it, obviously, if there's no damage, even if the contract's out of compliance, what what are, what are the damages? I mean, just because know. My, you know my font might be right, but if you don't have any termite damage arising from you know your your contract being out of uh, out of compliance, there's no recovery. So, you know, yeah. unless there's some recoverable damage, um, you know, attacking that contract really doesn't do them any good. But, but on the other hand, if on the other hand, if yeah, you do have yeah. damage and the contract is out of compliance, sometimes they can make the argument that, hey, you can't use that exclusion. You know, for example, um, let's say that you have a, a repair and retreatment contract where the exclusion says that um, we only uh, we only repair new damage that was that we verify a live infestation to be in, in the area claimed as new damage. Okay, that's great. But if the contract's out of compliance, then the argument to the court is, look, the statute says the contract has to have this warning on the front. And if it doesn't have this warning on the front, then, uh, you know, he cannot use that new damage uh, exclusion. And uh, it never goes before the jury. In fact, we had that issue in, in, in a case here in Florida where the judge ruled, you're right. Um, you know, uh, the contract is out of compliance. We're not going to allow you to use the uh, exclusion on the contract. And of course, the plaintiff recovered. And that's, wow. I mean, that is a, a real case here in Florida. And that case is being used time and time again in, in all the litigation, especially with one of the primary uh, plaintiff attorneys that are suing the industry. So how would someone go about, if I'm an operator and I know this, in, in, and obviously there's different rules for different states. Is there someone I can send my contracts to and say, hey, man, take a look at this and make sure that we're we're looking good? Is there because I'm assuming this person who's I mean, there's not there's more than one person. There's two particular I'm thinking of that are going around. And I mean, they're suing in different states. They're not just suing in one state. Correct. Correct. So how would I go about getting my contracts review to make sure that I can at least shut those doors down. Well, I mean, the obviously, you know, my firm does that, but there are other attorneys here in Florida who are uh you know, who are well who are knowledgeable in our industry and and the statute itself. I mean, it's not rocket science. It really isn't. I mean, the statute is what the statute says and the rule is what, what has to be in, in the contract. And you just have to get an attorney to know those statutory provisions, look at the contract and say, okay, does it do this? Yes or no. Does it do this? Yes or no. 
it, it, it really is not that hard. In fact, I have talked to the Department of Agriculture here in Florida and I said, look, I know you all go in and I know that you look at these contracts for compliance, but you really don't look deep enough into these contracts uh, to identify problems that they should fix. Uh, and I've actually suggested, look, let me put together an outline for you. So when your inspectors go in, they say this issue, this issue, this issue, this issue is your contracts out of compliance. And, you know, a lot of folks in the industry say, well, Ruff, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're throwing your, your clients under the bus. Well, I'm really not, because if the department can go around and inspect all these companies within a year and can correct these problems, they essentially shut down the plaintiff's bar from suing them. Yeah. For, yeah. for I mean, yeah, yeah, okay, you get a warning letter from the Department of Agriculture <laughs> saying your contract's out, fix it, versus $100,000 worth of claims that you don't really yeah. owe because you you weren't in compliance. No, so I, one of the interesting one of, one of the interesting things that came out of the presentation that you did is you put up a uh, um, a graph, a, a pie chart, and said, where are these claims coming from? And if I read the pie chart right, and correct me if I'm wrong, almost half of them are from contract issues. And then you have uh, like the treatment issues themselves are, I don't know, probably 15 or 20%. Is that is that right? All right. So what I did in creating that pie chart that was in the presentation is, you know, I've, I've been doing this for almost 28 years. So when I went back and I looked at it, I said, okay, in, in the claims that I see, okay, now there are other, you know, other lawyers that have to handle these, but in, in the claims that I see, and I and again, I've done it quite a while, I see that the bulk of the uh the bulk of the claims always start with a uh a contract issue, um, followed, you know, by treatment issues, 13645 claims. And then conducive conditions, you know, issues caused by conducive conditions. So by fixing your <clears throat> contracts and getting your, your contracts in order, you're, you're alleviating potentially over 40% of, of all the potential claims that can be brought against you. Now, obviously, if you don't follow the terms of your contract, that's another matter. I mean, that's right. a breach of contract, but at least start with a, a compliant contract. So one of the other things that you had brought up in your PowerPoint are the people who are causing you all this angst, uh, and a lot of them are salespeople. Oh, absolutely. Talk about that a little bit. Talk, talk about <laughs> how that works, and talk about the door-to-door -door industry, and 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 you know um, how all of this uh, you know comes together. So in looking in looking at uh, in, in looking at how a lot of these uh, properties are uh, that that are that are being placed under contracts now this is this is a little different from the contractual issue this is uh, a a making a determination on whether to sign a, a customer up or not what I see is is a lot of the sales force are not under any type of policy by the company as to what types of, of properties they will and will not sign up so let's face facts, okay? How does a salesman make money, okay? Uh, obviously, they get a base and then they get 15 or 20% of the sales. So it, it, it's in their interest to sell as much as they possibly can. The problem is, is that sometimes the owner needs to reach out and grab them by the neck and say, look, 
we're not going to sign up a property that I've got, you know, wood decaying fungi all over the side of the house. It's on wet ground and it's under a shaded oak tree next to a lake. I mean, you, if you look at all the conducive conditions that that are on that property, you know, is this something that I even want to touch? Now, because you know it's a problem, it's going to be a problem down the road. Um, you know, I see uh, I see situations where uh, I've got a, a multi-unit structure that is is essentially floods out all the time, and and they put a termidor treatment around it. Well, how can you know? <laughs> what are you going to put a liquid treatment around something that's wet all the time? You know, what what is the efficacy of that going to be? You know, and I hate to you know I'm not not downgrading termidor, but but you know. Uh, the product is is an excellent product. It's limitations. Same, sure. yeah, it's yeah, got yeah. its limitations. I mean, you can't spray it in water. Uh, and yeah. I've seen situations where you go out there and you see bathing systems underwater. So, you know, you got to be careful what you sign up. Make a determination. And and for God's sakes, you know, make a determination where you're going to try and put it under a repair warranty or a retreatment only warranty, you know. Um, and that's another thing you have to stop and think about. And and the good plaintiffs attorneys know how to overcome this. You know, um, a lot of folks that that come to me, they say, um, I don't want to do repair and retreatment contracts. I only want to do retreat only contracts. And I say to them, why? And and they say, well, I don't want the liability. Well, you have to remember that under a repair and retreatment contract, if you don't treat in accordance with the label or you don't inspect properly, what did you do? You just breached the contract, didn't you? Right, right. And you can go out there and you can go out there and retreat all you want, but if you're not inspecting properly and you're not treating in accordance with the label, you know they're gonna they're gonna claim their damages as a result of a breach of contract. So you you know you've got to understand that uh, when, when you're signing these these uh, properties up. So it's training is a target. Your contract is a target. What else? Is there anything else that, you know, as an owner, I need to be like, mm, I need to be paying attention to? I, I guess the, the third one we just talked about, which is some sort of controls on your salespeople, which absolutely I mean, that's like that's like herding cats. I mean, you know, we all know if you've been in business and you have salespeople and you have a sales team, it's it's like chasing the horizon. I mean, it's almost like we have to do it every couple of months. And so you got to pull people back and be like, hey, no, we're not, you know, we're not doing that. But okay, so those are three things. What else? Well, I think um, documentation in your system, um, and, and again, it's it's kind of a spinoff of the training to make sure that um, that that you are doing your annual renewal inspections and during your annual renewal inspections that you're documenting whether you found any evidence of the target organism and you're identifying conducive conditions. Um, so, and, and the conducive conditions is a big deal. Uh, let's be honest about it. If you sign a house up, you sign Mark Ref's house up, and I've got sprinklers blowing on the side of my house, and you say, you know, Mark, you, you know, uh, you need to fix this, and then I never do, and you keep taking my my renewal warranty, you know, what is my, you know, what what is my option? I mean, I'm taking your money. I know you have the conducive condition. I'm not forcing you to fix it. I'm not changing your warranty. Uh, you have to you have to be able to take control of that and say, look, if if uh, if you don't fix this, then I'm going to void your warranty, or at least I'm going to curb my you know my obligation to retreat the structure. And we have a back in 2008, uh, 5e14105 sub 8 was modified to address that condition. So 
this is something that that the industry has to look at conducive conditions you know am i going to renew in the face of that am i going to force that customer to to help me protect their own home so so documenting it is not enough is is what i think i hear you saying correct it's, i mean okay. you, you you've got to you you've got to take the next step and say Look, you, you need to fix this, um, and and right and put in your contract. Like, look, if I if you have a conducive condition and you're not going to help me fix your property, then I'm going to I'm going to terminate your warranty. And you have to be able to and and you know what, you have to be able to walk away. There, so there's, well, I was going to say, and just just for our listeners here, this this is so hard. Like when I say it's so hard, it's like it sounds so simple and then you go to scale it and it gets very difficult to do. And, and at triangle, we've had the same issue. And I just, this is something that I just want to share real quick. And, and I'm not telling you that you should do it this way, but we had the same problem and, and certainly some of the same concerns. And one of the ways that we fixed it, <clears throat> I say it's fixed and I don't want to open myself up here when by saying this, but we now do barcodes in the crawl spaces because we have crawl spaces here in North Carolina. We don't have them uh, in, in other markets that we operate in. And what we've done is we've used our CRM and we've tagged it back with these barcodes to validate and to document that each house was actually inspected. Um, <clears throat> and it provides a documentation on that account because that's one other concern I've always had is like, well, did the technician hit every spot of the crawl space, you know, and before we would go in and we'd, you know, take some chalk and we're right at the date and that's easy to do and not actually inspect, you know, and I mean, we have a great team. I don't, I don't want to sound like I don't trust my team, but it's like what, most what things. What are you, you doing? You're, yeah, you're putting a sticker with a barcode on it, and the yeah. So when we, yeah, so when we take on a house, yeah, when we when we yeah, that's pretty house, cool. We actually now we're barcoding crawl spaces on different, like it's basically the four corners, you know, and and so essentially what we're doing is it still doesn't show that they did a full thorough inspection, but what it does show they've is that been in the, they've they been had in. to go in there and they had to scan that barcode yeah. and that went back to the customer account and that stuff's all automated now. And so it's just kind of a gee whiz thing. I, I pass on to listeners that that's one of the ways that we're trying to solve this issue that, that, you know, Mark's talking about here as far as the documentation side is concerned, but it is really hard to scale stuff like that because again, when it's one or two or even five or 10, it's pretty simple. When it gets up into the 20,000 range, it, it gets a lot more difficult when you start having way many more people. So um, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Mark. I just no, wanted to throw that's that in. A, no, it's a, that's a good point. You know, I think it. I think we need to take this one step further and, and talk about insurance coverage because we're talking about documentation. We're talking about, you know, making sure we do timely inspections. And what I'm seeing is, uh, and I've worked for many of the insurance carriers that that are, are writing liability in, uh, insurance here for the pest control industry. And what is happening in their policies is that they are um, issuing endorsements that are essentially forcing the uh, pest control operator to do their job. You know, for example, you'll see endorsements in their policy that says every uh, wood destroying organism contract has to be under a written agreement. Um, you have to perform your annual inspections within 12 to 18 months. Um, you have to document the inspection. It has to be in writing. So what happens is when they get the claim, if if they don't if they haven't checked all these boxes or they can't show you um, renewal inspections in every year, uh, then they'll deny coverage for the claim. Yeah, the operator will be stroking the check. That's right. And yeah. 
<laughs> that's that's what's happening. I mean, and and I've seen it in in a couple of my other clients. I've seen where the carriers have just said, "Look, you you know, you didn't you didn't inspect within the eighteen month window. Uh, you know, there's all your records aren't here. Show me where you inspected the baiting system. You know, uh, every year. Well, no, I missed it that one. Or so mm-hmm. so when those records are missing, you know, what's happening is you're giving the insurance company the ability to to deny coverage. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's I mean, happening. It, and the thing I would add to that is, especially for our listeners, is that I, you know, depending on which CRM you're using, I absolutely would investigate technology of of ways that you can ensure that this is getting documented and then it's getting done. Because that that what Mark just talked about was my biggest concern is somehow some way we miss something. Because you know we, we have we have a lot of customers, we have a lot of technicians. It's easy for something to slip through the cracks, and no one know it until there's an issue, and so. You know, my goal as a business owner is how do I create a system? How do I engineer a system that I I, I get rid of that, right? I can't, that that somehow, some way I leverage technology to just to make sure that those things keep happening. And so, okay, let's, and let's. One, one more, one more point, but one okay. more point just before we move on. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk, I want to just address one issue with those companies that are using baiting systems, especially now with these systems that you only have to inspect once a year. You know, when you look at the the labels on on those products, none of those lab those labels tell you how to install, maintain those systems. They don't tell you anything about uh, inspecting the structure itself. Uh, the the labels tell you to inspect the system, but the industry standards still require you to go in and inspect that house uh, inside and out once a year. Uh, right. And and again, that that goes back to the insurance policy. Where are you inspecting that structure? within that 12 to 18 month window. So baiting systems, please, please, please just inspect the house inside and out. Yeah. We, we attach with ours, we attach an annual inspection with our baiting systems because it forces that time. And it's something that's on the schedule that, okay, you're going to inspect the house in addition to the system. If you're going to maintain the system. Now, Donnie, do you use a graph or just a, um, yeah, we use a graph. What, what, yeah. yeah. I mean, I will tell you here in North Carolina, we're pretty fortunate. It's a double-edged sword. Our yeah. regulatory side is pretty strong and pretty robust. And so they have very stringent requirements when it comes to really any kind of termite treatment. And so we couldn't, I mean, even if we wanted to, we couldn't get out of that annual inspection anyway, but, but, but at the end of the day, it, it's still like, it's still required, right? That bathing system is not foolproof. And I don't want to be covering a house and then find out. I mean, when I first, back when I used to crawl houses, which I mean, I still, if I go out with a technician now, but not every day, I saw some things with other bit larger companies where there'd be, I mean, complete band joists gone and it, the house been under been under warranty for 20 some years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes and, you know, and it's a bad situation, right? It's, it's bad for everyone. So Anyway, okay, so let's, we're getting more towards the end here. And, and, you know, I, by the way, I think for our listeners, this should be a lot of good ideas on on some things to think about. Walk me through some weird things that you've seen happen, Mark, some stories that come to mind when it comes to this, or some things that people that, you know, something that you've seen that someone they missed, just some things that are pretty common. um, And, and maybe some stories to go with it. Cause I know for me, I don't remember anything. I'm, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I do remember stories. So well, um, <clears throat> from from the service standpoint, um, I mean, I have seen more than my share of of, of pre treats where there was no chemical in the tank, 
Um, <laughs> I have seen. <laughs> I mean, look. Was there at least water? Just got to pretend. Well, you know, it, the, the thing about it is I, one of these days I'm going to write a book on on the politics of pest control, and I'm going to probably include all the stories yeah. and, and the strange things that, that I've seen happen over the years and some of the excuses. Um you know, for example, I just I just told you the you know you know about inspecting the structure, and you know I, I asked the owners. Uh, I said, well, why didn't you inspect the house? And they go, well, I followed the label, and in Florida, labels the law, labels the law, and it sounds like a parrot after a while. You know, mm-hmm. they all want to say labels the law. I said, well, the label tells you about the system, but it doesn't tell you about the industry standard. Um, you know, in in litigation, uh, I like to litigate. Uh, I I would rather. Uh, spend my time in a courtroom than writing reports, but you know, it. Experts in this industry are 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 bizarre. Um, it is so uh, it is so different to see the experts that the plaintiffs bring forward as far as the defense brings forward. You know, the defense will bring industry standard uh, uh, experts, and then you have plaintiffs uh, experts that come in, and it's like are you in the same world we are in? And it just seems like some of the times uh, what they tell you is seems just made up, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and a trial is, you know, who can, you know, who can convince us the, based on the facts presented at trial, who can, who can present the best story um, and, and get the jury to agree uh, on, uh, you know, on, on who should win, but if you have to stop and think about it from a trial perspective, how many, of those people sitting in the box when you have to choose a jury how many of those people sitting in a box has a have a have a house that you know they put themselves in the place of the of the of the plaintiff if it were my home what would i expect Mm -hmm. so and what i find what i find is that you know i i have to overcome two hurdles first first off i have to overcome the facts and then i have to overcome (laughs) the uh, proclivities of the people sitting in that jury box who 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 put themselves in in the plaintiff's place and say if it were my house what would i expect so you're almost behind the gun when you go to trial i mean unless you have right. a a clean case uh you know it, it's hard and um you know sometimes after the trial I, I'll, I'll ask the uh, I'll, I'll ask the the juror if i if they'll talk to me you know you know, why did you go that way? And and invariably, the answer is all the same. Well, what would I expect if it were my home? Mm-hmm. So something yeah. to something to consider. You know, I hate to quote Top Gun, but you know, in our industry, you got to do it cleaner and better than the other guy. You just got to do it. You got to do it right. 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 So, so Mark, the thing that 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 uh, absolutely fascinated me about this whole thing is that dual. Uh, lawsuit, the 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 contract and the damage. How prevalent is that in other, not industries, but but areas of suit? Like, does this make you know uh, an attorney who's money hungry? It seems to me that that this is this is a great area to be in. Are there other areas, or how you know what? How does this compare to other types of lawsuits? Well, I mean, uh, you know, my practice is limited, you know, really to focusing on the pest control industry, but a similar double recovery uh, appears in the workers' comp realm uh, for double recovery as well. I mean, I've seen it in, in in that setting as well. But 
And, you know, the first couple of years uh, that this one particular plaintiff's attorney brought it, it was a, a very, very novel issue. And until it went up on appeal, um, you know, it was summarily dismissed. But then in a negligence case, that's the law in Florida. Tortfeasor cannot take advantage of a, uh, a plaintiff's uh, insurance proceeds, you know, for a set off. So it becomes just a double recovery. And I will tell you that, that you know, regardless how hard you try, uh, if you have a, a bad case, the plaintiff's attorney is not going to settle with you until he resolves, he or she resolves the uh, the underlying collapse case. For which, you know, if they if they if they prevail, if that plaintiff's attorney prevails on the collapse case, then you know they're entitled to recovery of their attorney's fees as well. So you see how it's you know you see how it, it works. It, yeah, it, yeah you know, one of the and, and there's a lot of money. I mean, on the plaintiff side, you know, obviously the attorneys that do this and they're good at it, they make a lot of money at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the trouble is, you know, you look at that and it looks very, very. Uh, it looks very uh, tempting sometimes to to you know jump over the broom and go to the other side, but I think I'd probably find myself with uh, bricks yeah, around my leg. You'd have some hate now, the- but let me tell yeah. you, you'd, you'd have uh, some. I'd, I'd be yeah. at the bottom of a lake someplace with definitely have some blocks haters. on my feet. <laughs> yeah, I, look at, at the end of the day, I think this is you know we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap up here, but I I will say this you know for our listeners, listen, we are easy targets because it's difficult to do the things that Mark just described on a, on a scale I mean, when you have to scale it out and people know this, especially attorneys. And so the, the, the you know, I, if I were to leave you with any advice, which by the way, I took notes and I'm going to make some changes as a result of what I just heard is, <clears throat> you know, we have to find a way, how do we, how do we close off the doors and how do we not be an easy target? Well, you know, it's your training program. It's, it's documentation obviously is a big deal, making sure your contracts are straight and, and, and good to go there. And then also reining in your salespeople. And I think I got all of those, but for me, I'm, I'm actually going to look at all of those. I, and I, you know, Mark, I may have, you end up looking at our contracts as a result of this, but I just, I think the main thing is, is that the reason that this is happening is because smart people have figured out this is easy. This is low hanging fruit. You know, all I got to do is go in there and I got to find something and boom, I've got them. No big deal. And so Absolutely. you, so, you know, the thing to take away here is like, don't be that guy or that gal. Like, okay, I'm going to bat down the hatches and they start poking and prodding and, you know, looking for something. Yeah. This is probably not worth my time. I'll go find someone else to mess with. So anyway, Mark, this has been fantastic. Dan, anything to add before we finish out here? No, I think that's it. I think uh, what we'll do is uh, next episode, we'll do a uh, legal aspects of how to present a, a an inspection. So uh, stay tuned for that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you very much for, for coming on board. We're obviously going to have you back for another episode, but um, we can kind of continue this conversation and take it down another path <laughs> on the next episode. But as always, thank you for listening. You made it through another 40 minutes of listening to me and Dan Babble. I'm sure you are here for Mark, which is perfectly fine with us. But if you like this episode or any of our episodes, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Apple, Spotify, whatever, how it is you listen to us. And newly YouTube, which I prefer. That's kind of my platform of of choice. That's what I do all my stuff with. And with that, we're signing off. We'll see you all next time. Take care.